Hello, everyone. Welcome to Next Level Coaching with Rick Rass here. I'm very excited that you're here today, and I'm even more excited that you're ready to take your life to the next level. For my first podcast, I thought I'd take some time to introduce myself. I think it's helpful to know something about somebody before they challenge you or share a message. This introduction will be a biography of sorts. I'm hoping it doesn't get too long, but at the same time, learning about somebody's background may be necessary to establish the credibility that I feel is essential for those who would invest their time as listeners. Those of you coaches or athletes, management or employees who have gone through trainings with me in the past might be interested in some of the things that shape my perspective about life and taking it to the next level. At the end, I'll share what type of content you can expect from future podcasts. I grew up in St. Joseph, Minnesota. St. Joseph received a great deal of press over the last 25 years because of one of the most publicized child abduction cases in the country. Jacob Wetterling was taken in my parents' driveway. Growing up on the farm, I had five brothers and three sisters. We had 10,000 laying hens and dairy cattle. So there was always something to do. One of the things I learned from the farm, what needed to be done, needed to be done. And how you felt didn't really matter. For example, in the morning at about 4.30 or 5 o'clock, my dad would wake us up to open the nest in the chicken barn. Our chicken barn was big with 10,000 chickens, as I mentioned, 300 feet long and two levels. We couldn't turn on the lights, and we had to walk through the whole barn, dropping the red slats that kept the chickens from sleeping in the nest, and more importantly, kept them from taking a dump in the nest because then the eggs would be dirty. What we dreaded most was out of nowhere, the roosters would charge all out with their chest or even worse, trying to do damage with their talons. I never felt like doing this job. It just needed to be done. No questions and no excuses. That work ethic would definitely prove beneficial throughout my life. Many of the teams I work with presently, I'll challenge them with one of the most powerful words in the English language initiative. Many athletes know one or two or three or four things that they could do, flexibility, core strength, endurance, movement skills, or others that would make them better, but do they do it? How many high school, college, even professional athletes come into their season the best shape of their life? That work ethic that I picked up on the farm is definitely one of the top seven characteristics of athletes or people in any walk of life who are successful. The farm kept us busy, so other than my freshman year in high school, when I got to play baseball, I couldn't go out for sports. I went to Apollo High School in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and was fortunate that the modular scheduling allowed me to take multiple electives. Some of my peers called me the FIAD guy because I was always playing table tennis, badminton, basketball, doing gymnastics, and other sports. During parent-teacher conferences, my mom went in multiple times to share her concerns with the FIAD staff about me wasting so much time in the gym. What would I ever do with sports? My senior year, I took a volleyball elective every quarter and caught the volleyball bug. I couldn't get enough of it. After high school, I did nothing but train, study strength and conditioning, work on my volleyball skills, and school at St. Cloud State University. 
They joked about naming a wall after me because of all the time I spent working on my ball handling skills against the wall. In the early 80s, I helped start the Northern Intercollegiate Volleyball Conference for men's clubs teams and played and coached on the team in addition to working as an assistant coach for the women's volleyball team and the strength and conditioning coach. People often ask how I started with the one-man volleyball concept. During the summer of 1982, I ran a strength and conditioning camp in conjunction with the volleyball camp at St. Cloud State University. At the end of the camp, I invited athletes to my place for a grill-out. We had hung out for a while, and some of the guys from one of the area schools started talking about volleyball and how they had beat their girls' volleyball team at school, and they were a very good team. And I'm thinking to myself, well, they're just playing garbage ball. That's why they beat them. But they kept on going. They said, we could beat your men's club team at St. Cloud State. And I'm like, oh, not a chance, guys. Well, it came down to me just saying, you know, guys, I could probably beat you by myself. We actually went over to the university that night, played two games, and we had a bet on. If I beat them, they would all have to take me out to eat to Bonanza Sirloin Pit, which was my favorite restaurant at the time. And if they beat me, I'd owe all of them a meal at the same place. It was kind of the beginning of what I thought was going to be the last time, but opportunities just kept on popping up. After graduating from St. Cloud State, I started a job as a personal trainer at a large health club in Minneapolis. I bought a brand new Honda CRX and put seven miles on it before I was rear-ended at a stoplight, and the car was totaled. I had glass embedded in my head, in my face, and my chest was almost crushed. Technically, I'm 10 to 15% disabled in my neck and my back. At the time, volleyball was my life, and it took that accident for me to realize how much of my self-esteem was based on who I was as a volleyball player, and it was ugly. After recovery from the accident, I decided to take some time off and not play again unless I could play for the right reasons. I would have never guessed what was in store. When I came back to the sport, I competed in many tournaments with teams around the states and did some tours outside the country. One of my favorite trips was a trip to South America with the USA Athletes in Action men's volleyball team. I learned a ton on that trip about the game, and it would definitely be applied in the future. In my heart, I knew volleyball was going to be a tool, but had no idea really how. In 1986, I received a call from a friend of mine in Fort Hope, Ontario. Bill knew about my volleyball background and that I was involved in youth ministry. He inquired about getting a team together to come to Fort Hope for a week of outreach. They played hockey in the winter and volleyball in the summer. Bill was looking for anything that could make a positive impact. I told him that the volleyball players who I knew might be interested, but all had full-time jobs and be difficult to get time off and to coordinate our schedules. When I mentioned that I could come by myself, he thought I was kidding. It took several stories about opportunities that I had had as a one-man volleyball team to convince him that it was even possible. Both of us were excited about the idea, but the biggest roadblock was finances. The only way in to Fort Hope was to fly in with a small aircraft, and it wasn't cheap. Before we ended our conversation, we agreed that if it was meant to be, it would work out. Well, not more than five minutes after I hung up with Bill, there was a knock at my door. Pat said he was in the neighborhood and thought he would stop by. 
We talked for a while, and then he asked about the youth work I was doing in the area. After I told him, he asked me if there was anything else that was going on. I told him a little bit about the possibilities of going to Fort Hope for an outreach, and he asked if he could support the trip financially. I just thought, wow. He wrote a checkout for the travel expenses, and I was on my way to Fort Hope two weeks later. God works in amazing ways. When I got there, I was very excited, but also realized it wasn't going to be easy. Fort Hope was a village where alcohol and other drug use and suicide rate were out of control. Bill had done some work to promote the events. I would be playing against the community's best volleyball players, followed by a message. The first night, only a handful of people showed up, and those who were there, for the most part, were only the people that helped arrange the event. The second night's attendance was more promising, even though it really wasn't about the numbers. If a few lives could be changed, it would be worth it. On the third night and the fourth night, it was crazy to see nearly the whole community coming down to watch the volleyball and hear the message of hope. I was blown away. The next morning after a workout, I was relaxing, stretching out in the sun, having a great quiet time. In thinking about the response to the event, I was overwhelmed with emotion. I realized what a powerful platform volleyball would be to challenge people to make good choices and take their lives to the next level. Without any marketing, the word spread, and I couldn't keep up with all the requests in the Midwest. After some features on news channels, I was traveling all over the country playing teams by myself in a school assembly format. The one-man volleyball team format was just a vehicle to share a drug-free motivational message. My story was unique compared to others who shared a drug-free message in schools. Many speakers told students not to make the same mistake they had. I, however, had never had a drink or used other drugs and encouraged students to make the best choice, which was to never use. What influenced me? Well, I played saxophone in bands through high school and college on Friday and Saturday nights. On one particular night during my sophomore year in high school, we were playing at a large ballroom with several wedding parties in attendance. At about 11.55 p.m., I was looking forward to midnight because with this particular band, we always played the 50s version of Rock Around the Clock. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock. I had an improv solo and I loved to jam. However, right before the start of that song, a fight broke out right in front of the stage. How did it start? Well, everybody in the wedding party was trashed. The bride was dancing with another guy from the wedding party, and the groom apparently didn't like that too much. He walked up and then loaded on his newlywed wife. One punch, and she was knocked out on the floor. It was nasty. The cops came and shut the place down after the big fight. I remember thinking to myself, I am never going to drink, and I never did. I was grateful for the opportunities in school assemblies to share a positive message and make an impact. Talking to students after school assemblies was a highlight, or hearing from them later on in some way. Feedback that came from either emails or letters was so encouraging. I received a letter from a student in Somerset, Wisconsin, who wrote that she had planned on committing suicide after school that day, But instead of following through, she decided to write me instead and let me know how my message had changed her perspective about life. 
I didn't play volleyball to play volleyball. I played volleyball to challenge and, and encourage young people. The volleyball experience, however, provided such a great experience for me to learn so much about the keys to a higher level of performance. I never went into it thinking about winning or losing. In fact, over the years, many people have asked, you've played thousands of games without losing? How did you do it? Sometimes I would jokingly say, I scored more points than the other team. Most of the time, I would say that I didn't lose because I didn't care if I did. Fear is a huge inhibitor. The fear of losing is one of the greatest inhibitors in athletic performance. So many athletes lose their timing, rhythm, their ability to read, anticipate, and react when they are overly concerned about winning or losing. They get tense, they get tight, they lose their ability to focus. I'll do another podcast completely devoted to fear and some other obstacles that keep people from taking it to the next level. The hours and hours that I spent training and conditioning, working on my skills, and the experience competing in volleyball provided such a great experience for me and really would equip me for what I would be doing with athletic teams in the future. I really needed to make the most of my abilities. Many people expected me to be 6'6", and when I would show up, they'd look at me, I'm 5'11", and they think, you're the one-man volleyball team? Since I didn't have a coach, I learned a ton about goal setting and making the most out of practice and training. Many athletes have no problem setting long-term goals. It is often the process that is overlooked. They want to win, but they have no idea what level of performance they're striving for. How good do they want to be at what they do? What does it look like? Another podcast specifically deal with process-oriented goals, but the foundation of my philosophy about success and motivation are based on the principles I've learned in my own training. It wasn't about winning. It was always about getting better, studying the game, and looking for those little details and then making adjustments in order to level up. I encountered the frustration that is inevitable if you're going to take anything to the next level. And in the process, I learned about positive self-talk, confidence, and mental toughness. In wanting to make the most of every minute, I also needed to be completely engaged in what I was doing in practice. To many, John Wooden, former basketball coach at UCLA, is the greatest coach of all time. He said five minutes of focused practice is better than an hour and a half of going through the motion. I put myself in game scenarios all the time and learned to maintain focus in pressure situations. In my book, Take It to the Next Level, Finding the Keys to a Higher Level Performance, I share a story about one situation where I was up against a very skilled high school team. Several guys and girls on the team had full-ride Division I scholarships. At one point before the game, I just stood in the corner of the gym and watched them warm up. Very impressive. Two of the guys were thumping the ball down inside the 10-foot line and up into the rafters. A camera operator for a local news station approached me before the game and said, I have no idea how you're going to do this. The crowd was fired up. When I took the court on one side of the net and six players on the other side of the net, 2,500 kids started chanting, Overrated. Overrated. I remember flying home from that trip, thinking about how loud it was before the game started, but once the game started, I didn't hear a thing. 
It is very difficult to be confident if you don't believe in your abilities. That confidence doesn't come without preparation. One of the biggest obstacles in any pursuit is negative self-talk. Many people literally talk themselves out of doing things that they're very capable of doing. As soon as the negative self-talk kicks in, they lose their determination, their intensity, enthusiasm, and focus. Everything you need to take it to the next level. I've had one rule with the training I do with teams for over 18 years. No put-downs. You may think that it has a lot to do with how people speak to each other, but it has more to do with how you talk to yourself. Negative self-talk is definitely an issue that will be addressed in another podcast. Thomas Edison said, If everybody did what they were capable of doing, we would literally astound ourselves. My interpretation of that? You'd blow yourself away if you did what you were capable of doing. Level Up has everything to do with helping you take it to the next level and find out what you can do. For about 20 years, I was able to travel around the country doing school assemblies and other events with the volleyball. It was awesome, but traveling so much, in addition to working as a personal trainer at several health clubs in the mid-80s and then teaching and coaching since 1989, was a bit too much with a family at home. Plus, it got to the point where I was getting many calls from schools, not so much for my message, but because they wanted to see if their volleyball team could beat me. I didn't want students to remember what I could do. I wanted them to be challenged by what they could do. As a coach, I had taken several of my teams to different challenge courses. It was always a great experience, but I always thought it could be so much more. I found myself thinking about how some of the experiences we had applied to teamwork, motivation, and other things related to performance. When my wife, four kids at the time, and I moved to a piece of land in the country with 10 acres, my interest in experiential learning kicked into a high gear. We had beautiful 90-foot white pines, and I was determined to build a high ropes challenge course on my property. For over a year, I researched experiential learning and facilitating groups. Experiential learning is all about participating in the message instead of just listening. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. People are so much more likely to apply the lessons. I found the safety guidelines for building a high ropes challenge course from the Association of Challenge Course Technology a bit intimidating, and I was told that we wouldn't be able to find a homeowner's policy that would allow such high-risk activity. Long story short, I received the $10,000 grant from Central Minnesota Community Foundation, and with donations and deals that we'd received from various people and companies, we're able to build what I thought was likely the best challenge course in the Midwest. Another situation where God worked in amazing ways. You can find my website pretty easy online and go to the challenge course link for pictures. We had about 125 groups out every year for seven years, and it was incredible watching lives just being transformed over a course of three, four hours. Many of the coaches, advisors, and managers said that the biggest impact, however, was made with the challenges I did on the ground, in other words, low elements. It wasn't an easy decision, but I wasn't going to miss the maintenance, dealing with the weather, and trying to reschedule, staffing issues, insurance costs, etc. It would be more cost-effective for everyone, 
for me to go to their site since teams no longer had to deal with transportation. The teamwork, motivation, performance training I do now typically is about two, two and a half, three hours long. It's like team building on steroids. It's about motivation, communication, leadership, goal setting skills, dealing with frustration, setbacks, mental toughness, developing confidence, focus, and finding other keys to a higher level of performance. No one has more fun than me, and knowing it makes a difference makes it even better. I love surpassing people's expectations of what the training would be like. I remember working with a college football team last year, and when I went to the facility, some of the guys didn't know who I was, and out in the hallway out in front of the gym, I heard the conversation of a few guys saying, two and a half hours, what are we going to do for two and a half hours? I know I probably should not have favorites, but definitely one of the tops is the University of Minnesota Gopher men's gymnastics team. Initially, when I spoke to Coach Burns seven years ago, he said the guys were a little skeptical. They didn't really know what we would be doing for team building. And I think oftentimes guys will think that we're going to sit around a circle, hold hands, and sing kumbaya for two and a half hours. Once we get going, it's pretty obvious that they get fired up and engaged in the activities. And then following up with debriefing about what they learn, what they experience, how it applies to them, it makes for a pretty powerful experience and probably why so many coaches have me back multiple times. When I work with the team, I take into account the objectives, concerns, or issues that coaches may have for their team. And then I pick from over 150 different activities. I take a lot of pride in planning a training agenda that will match any specific objectives for the training. I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about what I do is because I'm living the message. I wouldn't be doing what I was doing unless I was doing it myself. When I turned 50, I had played volleyball for 34 years, and I thought, gosh, all the work that I'm doing with athletic teams, challenging them to go to the next level, I want to take another sport to the next level. When I saw freestyle kayaking, I knew that was it, and I haven't looked back since. It's pretty hard to give a good description of what freestyle kayaking is, other than it's really like gymnastics on the water. Freestyle kayaking and another sport that I picked up about a year ago is really like research for me. The process of studying the game, watching others, looking for those details, making adjustments is right in line with what I challenge athletes to do all the time. And it just makes me more passionate when I challenge them. Speaking of passion, I've always been pretty passionate about what I do. But when I died five years ago, I think that went to another level. My new life theme, every minute has a purpose. The minutes have certainly flown by as I've shared a bunch about myself. I hope that it's valuable information to learn a little bit about my journey and what my passion is if you choose to listen to future podcasts. Speaking of future podcasts, I'll cover a variety of topics and tell lots of stories from crazy experiences over the years. Some of the things I'll address, five things that you need to take it to the next level. How do you respond to frustration? Mental toughness is priceless. Keys to sustaining motivation and determination. In other words, learning how to celebrate progress. Misconceptions of hard work. How coachable, teachable are you? How big is the gap between what you want and what are you willing to do? Match your effort with your dreams. Don't miss out on the power of encouragement. Five things parents should do 
in five things they should definitely not do. Developing confidence. Your attitude will determine your altitude. I'll talk about goal setting, focus, visualization, developing a vision, recognizing obstacles, leadership, just to name a few. If there is interest, I hope to share details of maybe 25 time-tested activities that you could use with your athletes, your employees, your staff, and I'll provide visual aids through YouTube that would be great resources for those who might tap into an option like that. My purpose of this podcast is to inspire, motivate, challenge, and encourage you to make the most of your life and those around you who may be looking up to you for direction. Level Up is for anyone, not just athletes, since the principles will apply to you as you pursue the next level in business, your career, personal fitness, finance, faith, etc., etc. My hope is that it makes an impact. Thanks for listening. Have an awesome day.